this is the fear of science. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Fear of Science, the podcast that dives into the wide world of science and science-adjacent topics to demystify, debunk, and delight. Each show features a new fear along with special guests, surprises, and discoveries along the way. My name is Daniel Chai. And I'm Jeff Porter. But Jeff, Jeff, you know, uh, a quick question for you. Uh, what do what do Inns Choi award-winning creator of Kim's Convenience, Bianca Andreescu, the first Canadian woman to win a tennis Grand Slam title, and Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, all have in common. Um, They're all amazingly nice people. Yes, that is true. And, uh, of course, we checked that on Wikipedia beforehand. But... Uh, all three of them, Inns, Bianca, and Alexander, are also all immigrants to Canada. Oh, that makes sense, because that's what this episode is about. Absolutely. Ah. Uh, today's episode is, of course... Fear of Immigration. And, uh, of course, uh, just like these three examples, you know, immigrants, uh, you know, on the world stage... In our communities, our neighbors, our families, uh, they make tremendous contributions not only to our country but around the world and to the world. Um, and they are a huge part of what makes our society thrive. But they do face many challenges in their journey, uh, and a lot of those challenges are unfortunately fear-based. Mm-hmm. So uh, here to join us, Jeff. I'm very excited to uh, uh, welcome a very special guest on today's episode. She is an assistant professor of pharmacy. She describes herself as a Nigerian-born, U.S.-educated, Korean-speaking, wandering intellectual. She is also the host and producer of the More Sybil podcast, a weekly podcast for Blacks, Asians, and those who love them that explores important issues such as preserving cultural values, mental health issues, heart stories, and so much more. Since its launch, the podcast has reached over 60,000 people in more than 80 countries around the world. In our special guest spare time, she enjoys reading, journaling, writing, outdoor and extreme activities, traveling, and being an all-around Koreanophile. Almost got through it, but Koreanophile, (laughs) that's a beautiful word. We're very excited to welcome to the Fear of Science special guest, Mo Sibyl. Hey. hey guys thank you so much that was a very well done introduction i was like well is that about me so thank you <laughs> <laughs> thank you now uh, uh mo thank you very much for for joining us we're uh, uh very excited to to have you uh especially because you know as uh jeff and i we were chatting bef- before the podcast jeff had a a realization about the three of us mm-hmm. yeah so we have uh, Mo is an immigrant. Daniel is a first-generation immigrant, and I'm a second-generation immigrant. So immigration has played a very important role in all of our lives. We wouldn't be here without it. Yay! Uh, yay! <laughs> um, now, uh, uh, Jeff, I'm very glad that we, you know, uh, uh, have Mo here to discuss the fear of immigration. But you know, uh, I do wonder. You know, and I'm sure many other people are are perhaps wondering this too. Uh, are 
are people afraid of immigrants? Well, well, I think we can reframe that question and ask, why are people afraid of immigrants? Right? Uh, yes. 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 I think you can get more substance out of that. Sorry, I'm a teacher, so I, I always like to do open-ended questions rather than yes or no questions. Because you can get more <laughs> for your buck. <laughs> um, Brilliant. So, so I should, before I answer any of the questions on this podcast, I should say that, let me disclose some conflict of interest. I am a Nigerian immigrant to the U.S. So a lot of my comparisons and experience will stem from, you know, those facts. And as such, mm-hmm. responses to my questions should, you know, not be generalized beyond these experiences. I'm still learning and growing and I like having conversations. So back to your question, why are people afraid of immigrants? I think if you think about us as a species, we've always really been territorial. You know, we want to mm-hmm. keep uh, so like a species like thriving. And I think at the very core of that is that primordial fear of extinction. You know, um, people coming over and just invading and whatever we can define invasion in different levels. And um, people are also afraid of their country being taken over by immigrants. And um, in the US, for example, people are unwelcoming of what they call illegal immigrants, not because of fear, but based on morale grounds because they think it's wrong. I mean, if you've broken the law to come into the country, you're more likely to break the law. Now, are these fears always grounded? Probably not, but, you know, so I, I, to answer that question, I go back to that primordial fear of survival and in so many reasons. And I don't think they're necessarily um, healthy behaviors to have as we'll soon come to realize when we talk. But I think those, those, will, those examples will give us some ideas as to why people are afraid of immigrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I never really thought about the whole patriotism of it. Um, you know, we're, we're taught to be, even in Canada, um, that, you know, Canada's number one type thing. And, uh, and even though we're, we're not being taught Canada's number one, every other country is horrible. You, you do kind of start getting that after time uh, of after building up this patriotism in your mind. Um, so I, I totally understand that to an extent yeah. i'm also like the least patriotic person in the world so <laughs> i also don't understand that at all <laughs> now um I, i'm curious you know uh as we dive into this episode uh, i think perhaps to to provide some context for our listeners you know uh, i was perhaps each of us can share a bit of our own immigration story like a you know a little bit of framing that, you know, uh, kind of shares our own perspectives and perhaps where and how they shape our, our thoughts on this. Uh, for, for myself, I'll, I'll start. Uh, so I'm a first generation. So my, uh, so I, I was, you know, I'm very grateful to have been born here in Canada was uh, my parents were born in Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur. Uh, they they emigrated from there, uh, arrived here, I believe, in the seventies. And yeah, you know, I'm uh, uh, very grateful that I've had a chance to learn a little bit about their journeys. I had a chance to go back to China, Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, and learn a little bit about where they came from. But yeah, you know, uh, I am the the child of immigrants and I am very grateful that they took that journey and you know brought me here and gave me opportunities that you know maybe I wouldn't be able to have elsewhere mm-hmm. yeah oh, and you're yourself yourself Jeff uh, I believe I am second generation 
uh, my grandparents uh, immigrated here uh, from the Netherlands. Um, so on my mom's side, on my dad's side is, is Scottish very far back. I don't even know how many generations. Um, but uh, yeah, my grandparents were, were immigrants. And I always find it interesting when, when people start talking immigration with me because immigration to me is, is very important and I, I wouldn't be here if my grandparents didn't immigrate here. Um, but, you know, I, I think as well that there is racism that ends up getting attached to immigration as well um, because people start talking to me about immigration, about be like, oh, immigration is horrible. They're taking our jobs, all that crap. And I'm like, you know, I'm second generation immigrant. <laughs> like, even though I'm white, uh, my my grandparents immigrated here. They spoke almost no English uh, when they when they moved here as well, and they had to learn it. Um, so yeah, it's just really interesting. But you know, and technically, if you think about it, anyone who is not uh, indigenous is an immigrant. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, and and yourself, Mo, uh, as an immigrant, uh, as an immigrant currently living in the United States. Yeah. Well, yes. What is your story? What was your journey like? I'm not even going to go into what, you know, tier of immigrant I am. I'm just, I call myself the catalyst, the starter. So I'm Nigerian, born and bred, moved here in my 20s to pursue graduate education in Texas. And I stayed back. It's been 10 years now. I'm working now and I'm loving it. Wow. Nice. That's great. Um, when you, uh, so you first, uh, uh, so you first uh, landed in Texas, you, you said? Yes, 2011. Yes, August of 2011. Yeah. 2011. And, and cur- uh, currently you reside in? Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yes. Um, you know, uh, when you first arrived, was there, you know, uh, uh, like, did you know what you were, you know, what was going to be happening for you? Um, did you know, like, how prepared were you? for not only the immigration process, but perhaps, uh, you know, when you arrived and they're like, you know, was it like what you imagined? Oh, I see. That's a good question. Um, if you know me, I love to read stuff. I, I've always been a child. I was very fascinated with cultures, especially differences in people. And not as a way to kind of like, you know, set myself apart, but to understand and learn. So I was that child reading encyclopedias. So coming to the U.S. was just almost like a child who came into a buffet of like different cultures and then talking mm. to people because I still strive even through my life work as a podcaster and, you know, my research is to always explore that same thing, but different thread that runs through all of us. So despite all of my, you know, reading and knowing stuff and growing up with a healthy staple of American movies and, you know, all of that, nothing, nothing will ever prepare you for the realities that is like being an immigrant in, in the U.S., and I say that despite being a little bit aware about my my country, when you move out of your country to another country, being to understand the relativeness or relativity of your country compared to other countries, you know, like all of your sordid history or how other countries perceive you or how CNN or other news channel want to just, you know, portray your country in a different way. And if you think about Nigeria, there's all, there are always some stereotypes that come out of that. And of course, that puts an incredibly amount of pressure on you to always be that model citizen and an unpaid ambassador to always you know, do things right. But I'll say for the mm-hmm. most part, um, with life, there were some good aspects of that journey and some bad aspects of it. But I've come to the conclusion that, you know, 
people are people and countries are countries and the one we keep you know teasing those things apart and not like put a burden on people like to be representative or whatever we heard about them as far as stereotypes I think it will make the world a better place and so yeah to mm -hmm. answer your question um, nothing prepared me but I learned as I went on and I decided to and I learned how to find my own people my community of people that spoke my language and not necessarily my mother tongue, but that spoke my language of connection. So I find it a little bit easier connecting more with international people, people that had like a more of a global mindset, people right. that, you know, they long for that connection and, you know, and that has really served me well. That's great. Thank you. Thank Very you. well said. Thank you. Now, you know, uh, uh, as so, uh, uh, you, Mo, yourself and myself, we we are people of color, and you know, I've you know for for myself, I've definitely have experienced racism. You know, even here in uh, here in you know uh, very you know in theory very liberal Canada, very open hearted <laughs> Canada. You know, there is racism here, and that is you know I I think that's. In theory, that that shouldn't be up for debate, but um, <laughs> but you, you know, I I wonder, you know, uh, uh, you know, as we talk about, you know, earlier on, uh, we touched upon, you know, people worrying about losing jobs to to immigrants, people worried about, you know, uh, immigrants taking, you know, uh, taking the resources or you know being uh, being whatever on the system, you know, it, is that fear of immigrants just an excuse to be racist is it an excuse for racism or is that or is there something else there i don't think there should be any justification for racism and um so like i said i grew up in nigeria there's always an easy and there's a play because I, I still believe that the very core of it it's a people problem is a is a human heart problem right and so in my country, even though we, we all think of ourselves as Nigerians for the most part, we have like issues like tribalism because we are kind of divided by geographical lines. The languages speaks, our culture speak rather, our cultures are, you know, they're, they're well labeled as far as, you know, these people are from this tribe. So we still have some misconceptions and I guess xenophobic attitudes that come from that. So all that said, you know, I believe that wherever you go, there's always going to be an easy at play that kind of shows the deficiency and I guess the the wickedness, as a, as as I like to put it, of the human heart. Uh, so that's it. I don't think um, like racism. There's any justification for racism, and the problem of xenophobia or racism as well, even though those two are not interchangeable, it's a problem that is you know as old as the hills. If you go back to, you know, way back in the days, it's always, you know, one group that, you know, um, they feel like, oh, we're better than these people. As a matter of fact, just, you know, way back in 1907, we had the Bellingham issue with Hindus being attacked in, 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 in New Jersey. And, and it was kind of like an irony because a lot of the white people doing this, they were actually returnees from, the, from Europe. And so it kind of makes you think about what direction will assimilation or, in, or even like, um, I guess acceptance, acceptance go. And so there's never a justification for racism, but like I said, the fear comes um, for, uh, the, the fear comes from a place. And that's why I feel like xenophobia as a whole, even though it's a fear and it, it's kind of a negative, 
that can still be worked through with reorienting the person and you know helping them see things. I think racism is really deep. It takes you know it takes a lot of I think binding and casting and exorcism to like really get that behavior you know shifted. So I don't know if I answered your question, um, but I I still don't. There's never a justification for racism. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I I sometimes wonder if the the whole like 1950s marketing campaign of the white picket fence uh, nuclear family was just too good because it's almost like people want everyone to be exactly the same as them. And, and if anyone is any different from what they have in their mind, that's, it's an other person or it's someone that they can't identify with where in reality, I think people who are different from you have different stories and can help enrich your life and, and make the world a better place. In my opinion, I love people's stories. Yeah. I mean, a low hanging example will be, God forbid we have to eat one kind of food every day. You know, I love that I can walk into a Chinese restaurant today and having Chinese food, having Thai food. I mean, I know food is really a horrible example to use, but I use that because, you know, I love food a lot. It's just, you know, there's the diversity we have in people coming together. It helps for exchange of cultural ideas, of ways of doing things differently. And if we didn't have that, I think the world would be so much of a backward place. And I think it also explains the problem we're in right now with COVID is because we've had a lot of exchanges, which is kind of good. But the downside of that is, you know, viruses being spread at the rate of, you know, WTF per second. So that's that. Yeah, true. Now, you know, uh, uh, this is taking me back, I think, to to grade grade eight, grade maybe grade six or grade 10, maybe <laughs> earlier. Um, but, you know, it's the it's the concepts of mosaic versus melting pot, you know. Mm, um, right. You know, and in theory, in theory, Canada is, is a mosaic, in theory, where, you know, we celebrate, uh, you know, people's different cultural backgrounds and we, and we um, you know, uh, try to, uh, celebrate and showcase and spotlight those those differences that that make us uh you know a, a great country to you know borrow a phrase that i saw on canada.com so daniel um, let's bring you back to your uh your grade six eight or grade 10 sociology class yes uh, what is the difference between a mosaic and a melting pot so uh yeah so a, a mosaic is where we is where we uh, allow people to keep their traditions and cultures and by mm. allow uh maybe allow isn't quite the right word but where encourage. we encourage absolutely encourage people to keep their their cultures and traditions but a melting pot is where people are are expected to assimilate and become part of you know the uh uh you know, become like part of this country's, you know, uh, belief system and heritage and and uh, that sort of thing, and to put their own traditions aside and and learn and accommodate uh, the ones that are here. But you know, um, uh, I, you know, I, I'm wondering, like, are uh, are those concepts like are those concepts still in existence? Are they are they dead, you know, phrases? Like, is Canada becoming more of a, of a melting pot? Or is that even, or are those words even now passe? What, what do you two think? I don't know. I love the idea of a mosaic. 
I think that's that's beautiful, and I think that's what we should do is encourage other people's cultures and let them flourish. Um, I think it's it's true in some areas and some cities. Um, you know, like in Vancouver, we've got Chinatown where we're we're trying to keep the the Chinese heritage alive and the culture alive there. Um, but you know, then you know, you go to the suburbs. I feel like suburbs just kill everything. They just want everyone to be the exact same. Um, so I don't. I I think mosaic is is the dream, but I think we're more in between. I mean, that rhymed. I didn't mean it for it to drop. <laughs> no, I mean I liked your response. It was I was gonna you know stick to that line as well. I feel like a hybrid between being a mosaic and the mountain pot model would serve as well, because when we think of you know um, think of like a collage or a mosaic, they're like pieces like bordering each other, you know, and together they make a full picture. And that sounds really good and idealist, idealistic, but it's always very hard to um, maintain. But a melting pot can be quite problematic because there seems to be a lot of pressure, especially from the immigrants, to be the one that contributes to it. And mm-hmm. on the granular side of things, even though, you know, think about what a melting pot stands for. You bring stuff and then together we'll make this wonderful thing. I wouldn't want, for example, wasabi anywhere near my, uh, you know, my melting pot because, you know, it stands out. So I think ideally we should have like a hybrid of that and let people come at it naturally. But um, mm-hmm. unfortunately, I think we've adopted one over the other. Right, right. I think the only good melting pot is poutine. Who Canada? <laughs> Kim, kimchi, kimchi poutine. That's yeah. the only melting pot. <laughs> uh, shout, out, shout out, of course, to our friend Stark Poutine. Uh, and I believe by us giving them a shout out, they have to give us a shout out, Jeff. So, oh yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, now, uh, Mo, for uh, I, I'd love to learn a bit more about your uh, about your podcast, the the More Sybil podcast. Yes. Um, you know, uh, speaking of wonderful podcasts that we we love, uh, so your podcast again, it's um, first off a weekly podcast. Wow, Ooh, that's dedication. It's wow. true. It Immigrants just work harder. They just we do. <laughs> we take all the jobs and work harder. Yeah. <laughs> Taking all the podcast jobs. So first off, um, how long have you been doing your most your more civil podcast and what inspired you to create a podcast that you know uh, uh, speaks to uh, you know, blacks, Asians, and people who want to explore important issues around cultural values and so much more. Sure. Um, so I started this in 2018 of um, April, but I always say it probably began many, many years ago as a little kid. I've always been fascinated with radio. I love hearing people talk about stuff. I love, you know, um, on-air personalities bring up issues. And there was just that, I guess, mystery behind radio because you never could see the people talking. You just imagine what they will look like. And I love that. And um, when I moved to the US, I learned about podcasting. And I remember always going to the iTunes store then to listen to podcasts and people didn't know what it was. Then it felt very shameful listening to podcasts because you know you were just seen as this very weird person. And um, I guess it was my friends actually and my, my family telling me I needed to be more out there. I love conversations. I get high on just talking to people about stuff we don't want to talk about. And I'm a fairly good listener. And even though I have strong opinions about stuff, I've I found that my job is not really to convince people to adopt my 
values or my um, viewpoints because they might not necessarily be the right ones. So I always come at, you know, this is what I think about. Let's put it on the table and see what you can pick out of it. And you bring yours to the table and let's have conversations about these issues. We might not agree, but we're not going to like fight over it or, you know, even if it fights, it's not going to be like violent fights, you know, to death. And I, I found that approach really very good in especially exploring people whose value systems are different from mine. And yeah, so it's a podcast for Blacks, Asians, and those who love them. I'm Nigerian. I have adopted the Korean culture as a second culture. I speak and teach the language as well. And in talking to just people from different countries, I realized that we're so similar in so many ways. We might look different, you know, phenotypically, but at the end of the day, most of us want to belong to something. We want to feel like we're being heard. We want to feel connected. And I guess being in the U.S., I, I would say it was one of the biggest blessings in that regard because I could have access to people I normally wouldn't have access to. And so I, I had to like bring out a lot of my biases that I had about people whose countries that I had known about, you know, and relied on primary sources to kind of form an opinion. And in talking to them, I realized that it couldn't be further from the truth. So yes, my podcast is about just exploring issues that I think might be same, same, but different from, you know, people that I, you know, that either Blacks, Asians, or those who love them. So yes, that's the... Thank you. Thank you. That's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I, I really, you know, um, uh, pun not intended. I'm not even sure if this is a pun. But, you know, uh, I appreciate that your, your podcast is about connecting. And, you know, you mentioned that uh, uh, when, you, uh, when you immigrated to the United States, uh, emigrated from Nigeria, you were able to, you know, find find your community, find people who who spoke the same language, both uh, literally and figuratively, and you know, I, I think that you know a lot of, you know, even, you know, when I was younger, and you know, when I was younger, you know, I would hear things like, you know, it, it was it's very strange being a child in. Canada, and I think anywhere, but I think it's very strange being a, being a child, a children of immigrants, and hearing people say, "Go back, go back to where you came from." And I'm like, mm. even as a kid, you know, even as a kid, you're like, "I'm from here." I'm eight. You know, like it's like, like should what? I go back to Surrey? I don't know. I'll go home. Go to the hospital. Hi, I'm fine. You know, but uh, you know, it's like. Yeah, or or people, you know, being like, um, you know, it's very strange. Like when people would do, uh, like, uh, I'm a, an Asian Canadian Chinese, you know, uh, you know, Malaysian background, Chinese background, and have people do do, do the do like the slanty the slanty eye thing, or mm-hmm. or speak in you know uh, a racist. Uh, you know, accents to me, and I'm like, even as a kid, I'm like, your Asian accent is probably better than mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, like, I don't. It's very, it's it's very strange. Uh, I I bring this all up to go, you know, uh, like when I was a kid, and when other kids would do it to me, because it would be mainly kids or teenagers or youth who would be doing this, probably because adults have learned to hide their racist tendencies because back then there was no Twitter. You know, uh, how how much of that, how much of, you know, the 
any sort of anti-immigration sentiment, anti-immigration furor is uh, is caused by by ignorance, by not having enough information, um, you know, or is some of that just, you know, like, is, is it passed down familially? I think it's both ways. I think or both, both of those options, I think monkey see, monkey do. A lot of his behaviors are learned. And I also think from looking at a top-down approach, people in authority, so take, you know, your leaders and religious leaders alike, and even news media, we've been sold this lie about immigrants coming and disrupting it. And that's why you're not able to afford, you know, healthcare, because there's a lot of misappropriation of funds, of public funds in those areas. And then, of course, you want to pick the low-hanging fruit that is immigrants. So while a lot of these behaviors are learned, I also think they're being foiled by what we see and the people whose opinions we value. So like our, either religious leaders or people in power. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, is it now, you know, that said, you know, there's, um, you, you know, I, I think that the, uh, you know, there are so many reasons why people need to immigrate. And, and there's also many reasons why, countries should should uh, welcome immigration and you know i think that uh anyone can turn on the news can open up social media and see lots of unfortunately you know uh you know there there's lots of misinformation about about them about immigrants and immigration and you know uh i apparently in the near future uh, climate change based immigration will become a huge thing. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah, because as the world becomes more dry or more wet, depending on where you are, people will need to move and, and go to different places. So well, if we're screwed in Vancouver. Yeah. <laughs> it's already wet enough here. Could we build more land? Yeah. Uh, no. get, get working on the rafts right now. Um, so, so yeah, I guess my, um, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering like, you know, is, uh, like, where do we see the, uh, you know, immigration discussion, you know, continuing to evolve? That is such a huge question, but do we, do we ever see, you know, immigration becoming a thing that it's like, oh, you're an immigrant. Great. And then, you know, uh, oh, what's for lunch, you know, or, or should, should it ever be like that? You know, should it, should being an immigrant just be a normal everyday thing? Or should we, you know, in a way go the other way and also like celebrate and highlight and be like, hey, you're an immigrant. Awesome. Both. I mean, that's a very thoughtful question that, you know, it's hard to kind of come up with a response but let me do the toastmasters thing and answer it by saying what my hope will be regarding immigration and that is assimilation should not be the goal you know Mm, because when we make assimilation the goal there's an assumption of the direction of the assimilation meaning coming from the immigrants to basically assimilate to whatever extant culture is you know being that is made available in whatever area the truth is that what is really wrong in immigrants being the way they are? You know, most mm-hmm. people are here, or for example, in the U.S., because they need something. And it's not necessarily because here is better. 
I would very much love to be back in my home country where I don't have to explain my identity as being black, where I don't have to feel like I'm standing out in different ways. When people won't ask me from the umpteen time, like, oh, you have an accent. I would love to be there, but things are quite, you know, hard back home, you know, but there's so many other reasons why I would love to be home. Yeah. And so I think by making assumptions that assimilation should be one direction, we are positioning one culture as much superior over the others. Mm-hmm. And as a whole, I feel like the way immigrants are treated as if you're doing them a favor. The truth is that we need immigrants. Countries need immigrants. Countries need people with diverse skills from you know skilled and unskilled labels to like get the country rolling. It's a give and take situation. And so there's always been that sense, a lot of this sense of entitlement in the way we talk about immigrants, like we're entitled to their time and gratitude. No, we are not. So I'm hoping that the conversation will shift from assimilation to appreciation. And assimilation mm-hmm. is not, I feel like it's not like done and finished. It's present progressive. I'm always in that phase of assimilating. And I feel like, you know, I want to do that in my time, not because I'm being rushed to. Of course, countries can come up with competency levels. Say, for example, if I moved to Japan and I wanted to work there, I might have to take some classes to learn a little bit of Japan to help me get by. We, countries can create those rules, but it shouldn't come out of the way of eroding what is valuable to you. Immigrants yeah. shouldn't be seen as second-class citizens that are, you know, coming to take away everything, and then you're going to punish them by having them, you know, um, prescribed to whatever rules that you have. Yeah, and right. if one think about how Americans go elsewhere, how many times do they try to assimilate? Probably not. They complain a lot, you know, oh, you don't speak English here. So it's always that sense of entitlement that really gets me really, really crazy. So I hope that the conversation will shift from being assimilation, from assimilation to appreciation. Let people get at it when they want to. And let's just have, let's be more open about immigration. When you hear someone being an immigrant, I shouldn't feel like, oh, I'm going to be attacked when someone says that. Because usually when the conversation comes up, I'm like, oh, I'm already rolling my eyes. I'm already feeling, having this fright and, you know, flight response. Like, oh my gosh, where, where's the conversation going to go? I would like for that to be not even applicable. Mm-hmm. And and we learned uh, as well that assimilation is horrible because the Borg do it and the Borg are horrible, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> Now, uh, uh, according to, uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, checking in on the most trusted uh, website on uh, the internet, which is Wikipedia. Yes! Woo! I feel must, right? So even though right now, as we talk on this podcast, I can click edit. I can do whatever. (laughs) That's very, it's a very dangerous power. Uh, well, uh, so again, this is this. These are Canadian numbers. These are Canadian numbers that I have pulled up. But you know, uh, uh, in between 2017 to 2018, uh, net immigration accounted for 80 percent of Canada's population increase. Um, there are uh, let's see, number of number of migrants would climb from 310,000 in 2018. Up from so it's 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 around the three hundred to three hundred forty thousand in the year twenty twenty was projected to rise. The three main official reasons given for the level of immigration were uh, the social component. Canada facilitates family reunification. The humanitarian component relating to refugees and the economic component attracting immigrants who would contribute economically 
and fill labor market needs. Uh, so, you know, here in Canada, um, I, I believe that there are also, you know, maybe not necessarily here in Canada, but if my memory serves me correct, there are countries around the world that are having, you know, uh, population uh, decreases, COVID notwithstanding, you know, uh, there are some countries even before COVID that were having less babies being born, uh, you know, and needing people to, you know, uh, fill that labor market. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a really good example um, is uh, the Philippines, because in the Philippines, um, they're culturally, uh, they're, they're caregivers, they enjoy um, caring for for their seniors, uh, caring for their family. Um, so, uh, especially in Vancouver, we have a lot of Filipinos that move here uh, that are are very good at filling the roles of working at care homes, um, working at uh, in assisted living situations, right. and that typically is jobs that North Americans or Canadians don't want to do, uh, but Filipinos love to do that job. Um, so I think that's a good example of of those jobs that we're looking for that immigration really helps with. Um, I've never understood the whole, I don't understand a lot of things about uh, the argument against immigration, uh, to be clear, but the one I really don't understand is that they're taking our jobs. I, I think that there's more reverse immigration for that. I think the problem is uh, all companies, at least in my field in graphic design, all companies are outsourcing and, take, and getting uh, workers from outside of the country and taking jobs. So, yeah. 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 Um, I think to answer your first question, let's just even take it back to biology, bio, the concept of biodiversity. And uh, we know like as a species for us to like survive, um, there's always that the greater species, you know, diversity ensures that there's natural sustainability for all life forms. And so you mentioned the issue of, you know, Philippines, even in Korea, as an example, they're having issues now with low birth rates. They're having, um, having to send brides from like countries like Uzbekistan and you know, other countries to help fill in those gaps that they're having. Even Japan is having that problem because a lot of their population tends to be older and they're dying off. And so I, I still really still believe in diversity. And I always think that when countries send, when people emigrate away from their countries to a country that is more advanced. So for, for people like me, it was a push-pull factors. Coming from a developing country to a developed country, there were some things that attracted me in the US to be able to establish myself as a professional that my country didn't have. It wasn't necessarily because my country was really, really bad. It was something that attracted me here. And But then my country is missing the talent I have. You know, so as a whole, the US has actually taken a job of my country. So they should be paying my country, you know, for talents of like people that are, you know, talented and skilled living those countries. Because we are also having issues with, you know, healthcare workers living the country in Nigeria, going to other countries like the US, UK and Australia. So these problems, if you look at it on a global level, someone has to still, you know, suffer for it. And so being here, you still have that guilt that, you know, people you left back home there, you know, quite doing well. Now, concerning jobs, it's just, you know, I think it's just foolishness. Um, from data, the answer, um, it, it doesn't really make sense to say that immigrants are taking a job. Immigrants have usually a higher drive to succeed, so they pursue education and become qualified in jobs for jobs that both born citizens are unskilled for. Like, I went to school, got a master's degree, and got a PhD, and, and I'm, oh. I, 
I fought, I fought to get where I am today in every you know sense of that word, having to like overcome all the obstacles and even for the unskilled jobs. A lot of born Americans might not be able to do those kind of jobs that you mentioned. So I think there's always space for everybody to get to where mm-hmm. they need to be. And there's a lie we've been told to that, or oh, there's a there's, the pie is so fixed and someone takes a bite, a chunk of the pie, there's no more pie. Think of the pie as many kinds of pies, you know, it, there's not even a pie, you know, there's, there's nothing to like struggle or compete for. Let people just, you know, get to where they need to be without having to feel like they're taking away something that you deserve. If you deserve for it, deserve it and fight for it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Bravo. Also, wow, um, you have, a, a, I'm very uh, impressed by, so you, you have a master's, you have a master's and a PhD? I have a professional pharmacy degree. Yeah, I have three degrees. Yeah. Wow. What? <laughs> I'm an immigrant. I have to go to school. <laughs> well, I'm well, Nigerian, so education all the way. That's a good yeah. bit of check. Jeff, Jeff, do you have a degree? I don't have any degrees. I have zero. Wow. I have, I have two diplomas. I have one. Uh, um, but now, uh, uh, Mo, thank you for for saying that. I think you know it's that, you know that that idea, and you mentioned this earlier. You know the idea of having to be that model citizen as well yeah. is also another. You know, because for for example, you know a lot of you know not only taking jobs, but you know there is this idea that you know, and and by idea, it's it's an unfortunate, you know, pervasive. Um, in, in, Idea is not the right word, I think, but you know, it's belief, unfounded bias. belief, yeah, that yeah. that immigrants create more crime. You know, immigrants, uh, you know, uh, are, you know, are are more of a burden on the system. I think it still goes back to that sense of otherness we ascribe to people that don't look like us, and it's always good. I'm not saying you shouldn't, you should, you should claim to be colorblind. Like, observe the differences. But let it stop there. Don't elevate yourself beyond, you know, oh, like, you know, my race is better than that other person's race. Now, from the data, of course, it, it's, I mean, the answer is mostly no. Take, for example, if you hear that someone that looks like you did something very bad, it does not register in your brain as much as you hear that someone that looks very different from you that did something bad. And these are the stories that make the news, the ones we remember, the ones that stick in our brains, the ones that are, you know, turned two for seven, breaking news, breaking news. And if you accumulate enough of these you know, stories and these data points, they begin to form a cluster of these assumptions that you start to believe that these people are especially bad. And so there's no data to prove it. It's hard to actually shift these deep-seated beliefs. And I feel like a lot of these issues, they run deep when we, you know, because we already created a sense of ordinance. And we think that these people are really, you know, bad. They're more prone to do bad things more than me. And when we do this, we make ourselves easy prey to fall into the hands of the leaders and news media who, you know, play on these underlying fears and stock it. So no, I don't think immigrants commit more crimes necessarily. I think right. because, take for example, in the U.S., when people have to leave their countries to come here, and they're trying to become legal, they don't have a form of identifying them. And that's an inherent characteristic right there. And not being able to identify somebody if they were to commit a crime, they've already been unidentified. They're actually losing out on so many things. They can't get like jobs. They can't, you know, get a lot of things done because they have to hide under the radar. And if they committed a crime, they didn't commit a crime because they were unidentified. They've always already been unidentified. And we put those stories together and it, it forces, this, you know, fear of, of people and other people and other races and immigration. And I think it's just really sad. It's really sad. Mm-hmm. 
Um, this is from a very thorough uh, Wikipedia page called Immigration and Crime. And by uh, thorough, it has 273 references and uh, and about a dozen further readings. Wow. Like, wow, people on Wikipedia have so much time and dedication. I love it. <laughs> but uh, the, the overarching, uh, you know, um, uh, the bullet point is, uh, according to this, very quickly... Um, research suggests that people tend to overestimate the relationship between immigration and criminality and that the media tends to erroneously depict immigrants as particularly crime-prone. Crime the academic literature provides mixed findings for the relationship between immigration and crime worldwide, but finds that for the United States, and there are one, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, there's eight references here, uh, the academic literature finds that for the United States, immigration either has no impact on the crime rate or it reduces the crime rate. Hmm. A meta-analysis of 51 studies from 1994 to 2014 uh, show that overall immigration reduces crime, but the relationship is very weak. So now, Mo, as, as we head towards the, the end of our conversation here, um, I do have a question that I would love to uh learn a little bit more of and you know this again i think speaks to your your passion for connection and learning from different people in different cultures uh you know you you mentioned that you are a, a koreanophile koreanophile yeah. Yeah. and uh, and you speak korean yes i do bravo that is wonderful yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> what is what inspired your your love of all things korean um mm -hmm. I think it goes back to those conversations I had with people when I came to grad school. I mean, I'd known about Korean, Korea all my life, but it just, it was just like, you know, another country. And well, I had a colleague who was Korean in grad school and we took statistics class together. And I usually ask her, hey, you know, can I just take some, take a note to like filling bits and pieces that I missed during the class. And I realized that she was doodling in Korean and I asked her, oh, what is that? So, oh, that's my language. I was like, oh, that looks very weird. And, you know, fast forward three years later, we ended up being interns in Boston. And because of the high cost of living, we decided to room together for the whole of that summer. And she ate rice like every day. She had this rice cooker that spoke a weird language, which ended up being Korean. And every time we'll come back from work, there was always rice. And I asked her, hey, you know, how can you guys eat rice and you're this skinny? Like, I need to know, like, why do you guys eat rice so much? And apparently in, in Korea, and I think, you know, in most Asian cultures, they flip the whole pyramid, you know, upside down. Rice was a side dish. Meanwhile, in my country, we ate them by the basins. I was like, wow, you know, so I learned how to like eat rice moderately, like enjoying it without having to like say Hail Mary. So she taught me that. And then we just started talking about our family. And I realized that, my gosh, your mom is as crazy as my mom. Like my mom's cheeks <laughs> and things she did, you could have thought they were kind of separated at birth. And so here we were, this Korean and this, you know, Nigerian, just, you know, talking and just laughing our heads off. And at that, I think that in that apartment in Boston, it satisfied that idea, like, so many things we have that are so similar. If, it, if I didn't have the opportunity to explore it during that summer, I probably wouldn't have known. And of course, she said, you know, she would watch Korean TV, and I didn't want to watch it because when I watch TV most of the time, I put them in the background to do my work. And I didn't want right. anything that would take me away from my, peel my eyes away from my computer. I have to start relying on subtitles. 
but I, you know, I, I muscled through one episode. I was like, this is actually good content because a lot of Korean TV shows, they are very dense. They don't go like 10, you know, seasons long. And they're very deep with like Confucianism principles. And they're almost like telling like a poem when they like talk and have dialogues. And I like that density and, you know, meaningful um, exploration of like issues. And um, I started seeing some similarities also, you know, between my culture as a Nigerian and actually specifically Yoruba culture in Nigeria and Korean is we have that love for family. We have that sense of national pride. We love food, we celebrate through food. And, and that was it. And three years later after grad school, I was bored. I was trying to get my visa to start working. And that meant I couldn't do anything and I hate to be idle. And, you know, an email came in from Coursera. I want to learn Korean one and I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And the rest, as I said, was history. I think Korean was different for me because I do, I used to speak French a lot, but I, you know, I've lost all of that because I wasn't very much interested in French culture. I didn't really get to meet French people. And French was a language that we kind of learned as a second language in Nigeria because we're surrounded by a lot of French speaking countries. With Korean, I think it, I, I, it found me in a way. It's, it's, mm. there's a spiritual connection to it that I really cannot explain. Um, when I'm stressed, I study Korean. When I need to express myself is fast becoming my emotional language. I do have my analytical language, but my brain is able to switch between, you know, Korean and English because there's so many expressions I cannot um, make in my mother tongue or even in English that I find Korean expressions so that, you know, help me with that. And I've had a lot of help along the way. I started learning six months self-taught and I knocked all the basics and now I, um, I, I do freestyle speaking with my Korean friends. So shout out to Sylvia, she's one of my tutors. And I've learned a lot. I learned a lot about the history. I've written um, a lot of blog articles on comparing the economic development of Korea with my country. So for me, it's not just exploring one aspect of the country. I have a full appreciation for even the good and bad parts of it. Cause I feel like no culture is like, you know, 100% good. There are good things about Korean culture, there are bad things about you know Korean culture, same as my culture as well. But it's seeing what I can um, explore and how it can make me be an all-round person. And Korean has given me a key to another universe that English and my mother language didn't afford me. Like I go into the school club and I can express myself in another language. So yes. That's beautiful. I, I always am so jealous of people who can speak multiple languages because I struggle enough with English. And uh, I when I lived in London, I actually had an, a neighbor, um, Caius, uh, who spoke, he worked for Google, and he was like one of the translators for Google. Oh, nice. um, and uh, he, he spoke eight or nine different languages. Oh. Um, and he was funny because when he would drink, he would forget which language he was speaking <laughs> in. <laughs> so he would just uh, switch from like Farsi to to Italian, and and we'd be like, "You're not speaking English anymore. No one knows what you're saying at all." Yeah, That's amazing. Yeah. Um, thank you. Well, uh, thank you so much for for that uh, lovely, uh, you know, sharing your experience with us. I think thank that you. that reminder that you know it's the similarities that that bring us together. And hopefully mm-hmm. we can, you know, uh, hopefully we can remember that it's the similarities that should bring us together rather than the differences that drive us apart. Yes. Especially yes. during this time. Yeah. My, well, I was going to say to just keep, you know, leaving that space for questions. Um, I wouldn't be this confident in my ability to approach Korean, Korean culture as a Black person 
if I didn't have that invitation extended to me by Koreans, because mm. the beginning part, I felt very fake about it. How did I, how could I explain why I love this culture? That it was just beyond, you know, what I saw. There was something about it that just connected to me. So I really give kudos to those friends who helped me because I struggled a lot. I thought it was, you know, it was going to be a fad. I was being fake about it. I was too passionate about it. And so let's keep giving space for people to ask questions and explore as well. And if you're asking questions that you think might be quite difficult, find a way to rephrase it. Because I, I can answer, ask any question you have, if you're to know about me being Nigerian, but it depends on how you ask it. Uh, Mo, thank you so much for joining us for, for our discussion today. I feel like I've learned so much and now I'm inspired to learn like even more. Wow. This is wonderful. Yeah, yeah so much to learn. Beth getting it. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, uh, for, for P- our listeners who would like to know more about you and your podcast uh, and, and your great work, uh, where can they learn more and follow you on social media? Uh, I, I won't advocate following. Just follow if you're interested. Um, because you know, I just talk about things that are important to me. So don't follow for the sake of it. If you if you have an interest, just follow. But by all means, you know, you can check out the podcast because that is is it's above and beyond what I talk about. Because I always have conversations with people, and there are different topics. Like I've talked to you know people from all walks of life, of of life. Sorry. So it's the Marcible podcast. And you can pretty much find it on major platforms, legal platforms. And you can check out the website as well, www.mosibyl.com. That's mosibyl.com. I'm on Instagram as at mosibyl and also on Twitter. Twitter is worse. I don't really go on there. It feels like a jungle, but Instagram for sure. And the podcast is on Instagram as the Morcible Podcast. So find me if you want to have a conversation about, you know, whatever. Just, you know, I like to talk to people. Let's have a conversation. Um, absolutely, Mo. Uh, uh, you you have a wonderful energy and a really uh, great way of uh... Uh, sharing your experiences and I can tell that you know connecting is a really big part of what you do so thank you for that thank you and thanks for being a fact finder this is like my fourth podcast that I'm listening to and sometimes I do like real-time fact checking it's really good it's really it's like science business and I like that a lot so kudos to you guys (laughs) Daniel Twink with the Wikipedia yes It's a source. I like Wikipedia. <laughs> and and Jeff, for for our listeners who for some reason for some reason stumbled upon us uh, on a random podcast player, uh, where can they follow us and learn more about what we do? Uh, you can find us on the social medias at Science Fears on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, everyone, thank you for for listening. You know, above and uh, you know, above everything, I think absolutely. Let's celebrate, you know, each other. Let's connect with each other. Uh, do so safely, especially during this time. And yeah, keep on, keep on learning and listening. Uh, again, I'm Daniel, and I'm Jeff, and that's the fear of science.